0: Welcome, everyone. I am Cale Fliggy, and this is the Made in Gainesville podcast. On this show, you'll hear stories and get insights from business owners and leaders from across the nation that have ties to Gainesville. On this episode, I'll be talking with Dr. Nuri Yerlin, a senior software engineer lead at Microsoft. Nuri and I will discuss the problems that social media can cause in society, artificial intelligence, the rapid disruption of traditional jobs by tech, developing Microsoft's Windows operating system, and more. Enjoy! You mentioned that Facebook is the root of all evil. Now what's interesting about you is you dropped your social media presence pretty much earlier than anybody. Like before there was the privacy concern. I mean I think you had a privacy concern, but you dropped it before there was like a well-known privacy concern. I think you even dropped social media before Facebook was opened outside of universities, right? Yeah. So what was what made you so early to remove yourself from social media? So
1: my PhD research was is, you know, I, I kind of have two pieces of the PhD research. The first part of the PhD, I studied uh, graph systems. So graph theory and graph partitioning is what it's called. So in the graph partitioning problem, you try to basically take a big graph. Graphs are just vertices with edges in between them. It's like a big connect the dots kind of problem, right? And you wanna basically remove the fewest number of edges so that you can separate the graph into two pieces. That's kind of the idea you want a cheap way to cut the thing um, into two pieces. And the way to kind of think about that is, you know, if you have the connect the dots again, what, you know, how many edges can you erase so that you have, you know, roughly the same number of dots in two connected pieces of the connect the dots puzzle or, you know, like the coloring thing. Uh, Facebook was moving more towards that graph kind of model. You know, at at first you could just type in, Hey, what are your interests? And you could just type, Oh, I like to do this. And I like to do that. And you'd like type it, they had a a change where they, where they actually prevented you, they removed those kind of free text, natural language, you know, free response kind of, uh, uh, you know, fields. And they replaced those with, you have to link to a page. You had to create a page. If you like scuba diving, you have to, you can't just say, oh yeah, I really enjoy scuba diving off the Gulf coast, blah, blah, blah. You had to like link to a page that was about scuba diving. And if you could find a scuba diving group or something, right, they had all these ways to like basically funnel people into thinking more in terms of, you know, you, you attach or you like a thing, right? Uh, You like a page or you add yourself to a page or whatever it was called back then. Um, And I very quickly recognize that they're doing that because it makes these types of graph walks easier to do instead of having to run a natural language processing thing then and then try to like extract, okay, I see scuba diving in the free response, but does that mean that they like it or not like it? So there's like a sentiment analysis on top that you would have to do. So instead of that, they just kind of said, hey, you don't get to write whatever you want anymore. But instead, if you like it, you can click like. So that's another observation that you could not dislike something, right? So you couldn't, in the free text, you could say, oh, yeah, I really like scuba diving, you know, but man, the West Coast is really cold. I don't don't like putting on a dry suit, that kind of sucks, right? So their algorithm might not be able to catch that. But if you just have likes, then it's very simple. You either have the edge in the graph or you don't have the edge in the graph. And I realized very quickly that they were trying to monetize this because why else would you do that, right? It, It shifted at that time from being, kind of a, my mental model of what Facebook was shifted from it kind of being a cool service that lets me keep in touch with my friends and stuff like that, kind of like a virtual phone book or Rolodex, it shifted from that to being more of a product thing. Like, oh, they're actually trying to sell targeted advertisements. And this was long before anybody even like realized that that's what they were doing. This was just like, I, I noticed that they were taking away a text input in a thing that was free. And I was like, that's weird. Like, there's only one reason why you would do that. Um. And yeah, you know, since then we've seen we've seen the the outcome of that. I think, right? Like, it's just carrying forward that scuba diving analogy. You know, if if you are somebody who is selling scuba equipment and you want to sell to Facebook, um, Facebook can sell you an advertising package. Um, but Facebook's you know real strength is that they can say, hey, but we're only gonna show your advertisement to people who, you know, have a like on scuba diving. So now the value of your dollar when you pay for advertising, you know, you're getting much more value because the people who are seeing your advertisement at least have have taken the action of saying that they like scuba diving at some point in their life. This is a lot, you know, a lot better uh, target-based advertising or whatever you want to call it um, than something like TV or like anybody that watches TV just sees the same ads, right? Um, so it's super lucrative from an advertising standpoint and super valuable if you're actually trying to sell scuba stuff because now you have kind of a a better you have better kind of customer reach and customer engagement because you can actually guarantee to some degree that people you know like like scuba diving but that's not where it stops it doesn't just stop at scuba diving the real kind of insidious thing that that uh, drives this is that profit motive right so yeah, sure, you know, we can sell scuba targeted advertisements for that subset of people for, you know, a premium price. But what if you do actually want to only sell scuba equipment, like dry suit type stuff in cold water environments? Well, now you you can actually go in and they can look at people who they can basically correlate the geotagging with either, you know, where you put your photos up, or where you're making your posts from. Or they can do other things like uh, you know, look at where you sign in or look at where your address is. And now they can say, okay, you scuba dive and you live on the West coast. So now they can actually charge a little bit more money for folks that are selling scuba equipment that want to limit their, their visibility or their reach to just customers on the West coast. So now they're starting to differentiate the population, right? The idea is that the, the better, the, the higher probability that you know, an an advertiser will spend money to reach exactly the crowd of people that they want to reach means that uh, they can charge more for it because it's essentially a premium. They're like pre-filtering the audience. So this notion of pre-filtering the audience, you know, is is baked into how Facebook makes money, right? They want to basically be able to differentiate people to the point where if somebody comes up and says, we want to sell advertising, you know, here's kind of the, the set of filters that we want. We want... You know, West Coast scuba diving, but, you know, maybe people that only live in California, you know, you can people that and, and then the the really crazy thing that we've seen recently in politics is that same thing gets applied to politics. If you want to sell a targeted, you know, political ad, you, know, you can do the same thing. I mean, it's the same code, right? Code is code, algorithms are algorithms. Like what, what starts as just a, a way to make money and kind of enrich the value proposition for people that are trying to sell stuff in, in an advertising way can be used or reused, right? For like selling political ads or affecting uh, popular opinion so you know that's kind of the direction that we've seen is this uh kind of the society gets more and more fractured and because i think it's kind of a, a natural outcome of trying to be able to sell and make more money from you know more narrow uh, market segments so it's just kind of a natural outcome of turning the crank and seeing what happens when you take these algorithms to the extreme
0: so you mentioned your uh, PhD from UF and I noticed that it, your PhD study was in graph partitioning and GPU accelerated multifrontal sparse QR factorization.
1: What does that mean? The last one. So yeah, the, <laughs> so yeah, but I, I was talking about how the first half was kind of this, you know, graph theory kind of right. more theoretical there, you know, you have these like vertices and it's really hard to describe. Uh, the second one was a little bit more of a, you know, less theoretical and more applied. So it's like, okay, great. You have some nice theory stuff, but now, uh, there's a little bit of computer systems there. We, we had an algorithm that works. Um, it's a linear algebra thing. So it's a way to factorize a big matrix system into upper triangular, lower triangular matrices. You're basically trying to solve like the algebra two problem. If I have two equations and two unknowns, as long as like one of the equations is not just like another, a multiple of the first one then that means that you have a unique solution, uh, you know, an X and a Y that makes sense for both the equations. So it turns out that the, the math there is super interesting for all of the, the stuff that you know, we do nowadays in, in computer science at scale. So instead of two equations and two unknowns, we're usually solving hundreds of millions of equations and hundreds of millions of unknowns. And sometimes you know, the systems are uh, overdetermined. So there's not just one solution, maybe there's a bunch of solutions. Maybe you have a million equations, but you only have fifty unknowns, and now it turns into a question of okay, well, which you know subject to some kind of business problem that you're trying to solve, what is the right way to assign values to the variables so that yeah, sure, it, it solves all of them, but you know maybe minimizes the the length of the vector that you get if you put all the x, y, z things together. Uh, so there's a bunch of these types of um, you know math math problems and uh, solving those usually involves some kind of factorization so in algebra two you just basically look at it you say oh yeah if i multiply the second equation by a negative three and add the first equation then something cancels out and i win right and that's how i'm able to solve it Uh, when you can't really do that when you have like hundreds of millions of equations with hundreds of millions of unknowns so we use computers Uh, and then so these factorization methods basically are sneaky ways to go through and do the cancellations for you and kind of explore that space and figure out, well, which one do you really multiply by how much and then how do you cancel it out? Um, and so there's a bunch of, uh, there, there's a lot of math libraries and programs that are just geared towards doing this for uh, you know things like industrial uh, production systems. Like if you're building a new plane, you wanna understand how air is gonna flow over the airfoil. So you put little sensors, you collect data, and then you do a factorization to see if you have to, like, you know, change the aerodynamics of the airplane so that it, it is more fuel efficient or, you know, has more lift or less lift or whatever you need. Hopefully you don't run into like a Boeing problem where they had too much lift and they crashed. <laughs> but I don't, I don't want to editorialize too much. So, yeah, so we we have all of the we have like this huge like library of all of these different algorithms, um, but GPUs are really good at doing math. So the GPU is the graphics processing unit. It's like a a different, you know, you get like a a card that you can put in your computer and all it does is basically graphics. Um, And so, you know, it used to be kind of a niche market because, you know, it used to be when you fragged people on Doom, you wanted like you wanted to really see their guts explode all over the screen. So you had to get like the fancy uh, GPU cards that you could really see all those particle effects and stuff like that. Um, But it turns out that the the way that they do computer graphics is, uh, you know, they have essentially wireframes that they're applying, uh, it's like triangle meshes, and then they're putting uh, textures on it, and they're applying shading and stuff like that. And a lot of that is, it boils down to uh, linear transformations or affine transformations, which is just kind of an extension or generalization. And to be able to render really quickly, they have really, you know, the, GPUs, the GPU market basically became this extremely specialized way to get very high throughput for linear algebra operations. Matrix multiplies, uh, adds, divides, stuff like that. So, uh, you know, it became very appealing to try to say, oh, we have hardware that is really, really good at doing linear algebra. We have really, really big linear algebra problems that we wanna solve can we try to get those problems you know kind of reformulated or stated in a way that makes it easy for the gpu to use because the gpu is extremely highly specialized uh you can't just like write the same computer code that you write for other stuff and expect it to work the same way on the gpu just because the dynamics of the system are a little different like uh, the way that ram works is a little bit different there's no hard drive on the gpu so there's there's all these interesting, like systems level problems that you have to kind of adapt your algorithm to work, you know, better on on the GPU. So when we did that, uh, you know, the first one we took was that QR factorization thing. Uh, we took sparse. So there's the this notion of sparse versus dense. Uh, dense means that basically, if you look at your Excel table and you look at your matrix as like an Excel table, basically everything's filled in. If it's sparse, basically everything's empty. So you get a a storage win if you just know the locations of where the non-zero entries are and then you say well if i don't know about it it's zero uh so we adapted the sparse qr factorization to the gpu essentially and then we got you know a lot of a lot of speed up it was like a 100x 100 times faster than contemporary algorithms
0: you realize only like one person listening is going to understand that right
1: no i mean it's fine basically we're we took we took a, we took code that we know like works elsewhere, and we got it hundred times faster. But we had to use a basically a different computer, and so we had to change our algorithm. The cool thing about that is like it's very straightforward to like write some of this stuff. Like the math, the way that you express the math is you know like an undergraduate thing. Um, there's a lot of different ways to write steps to how to do something. Right, the algorithm is really just a series of steps that you take. Like from the the Arabic, it's like just steps that you take. So there's a bunch of different ways that you can write out the steps and you can write out lots of different things, right? There, there's not some ways to write out steps are better than other ways that you can write out a step better in terms of how many things you have to remember as you go or the total number of steps to complete the operation. Uh, so sometimes, you know, we have to take some of these algorithms and, and restructure them so that You know, they're still fast, but they work better for different types of computers. We have the same problem with uh, I I say we but like just computer science has the same problem when you know uh, something that we're trying to do is too big to fit on one computer. So then you have to think about Oh, we, we have to think about a new set of steps so that we can break the problem apart somehow and have 10 computers work on it and then we have to maybe each one gets kind of partial results and then we have to recombine them. So yeah it's quite common to like take an algorithm that you know is the best for whatever, uh, provably, you know, you, there's a whole branch of like mathematics and computer science that's like geared towards just proving whether or not the set of steps is the best. Like, can you remove a step and still have it do the job or, or uh, is it really the minimal set of steps? So sometimes you add more steps, but it's actually faster because theory is very different than practice. Like at the end of the day, we're still running on essentially a machine, right? So the machine has to take a set of steps. I mean, the machine is super miniaturized and super highly specialized, but it's still at the end of the day, a machine that runs instructions and does work.
0: So what is AI? I feel like that's just thrown around a lot. And also what isn't it?
1: AI, yeah, so, oh man, AI has been, been around for a long time. Uh, like as early as Isaac Asimov, right? Asimov is one of the first guys to really think about like, okay, well we have humans, but then like, what if there's robots that kind of are smart, as smart as humans, but there's something that we make, you know, humans have this deep fascination with creation. You know, there's, there's a bunch of, you know, religious and theological overtones with, you know, intelligent design and creation and stuff like that. So when we, when we start thinking about these computer systems that can start doing crazy things that we don't, as a society, we don't really know how to deal with or we don't know why it's doing that, right? So like, you know, a lot of these things are spooky, and they feel weird, because we as humans don't really know how to deal with that. Um, But, you know, we then the imagination starts sparking, and we're like, Oh, what if, what if the computer knows a bunch of stuff? Or what if we could, you know, somehow reinvent ourselves? Or what happens if we build something that's smarter than we are? And so that's kind of a, a, you know, everybody thinks about AI because of the value and and the disruptive capabilities, but then you're right to ask, well, what is what really is this stuff? Like, what is it? What is machine learning? What is AI? What, what is it not is a really good question. So I would I the way I think about AI and machine learning, aside from just being kind of buzzwords that you put on a resume to get like a fancy job interview, um, it, it goes back to that math problem, like humans do a really bad job of trying to understand what a million is. Like what is a million dollars what is a billion dollars right these these scale problems are really hard for humans to understand so when we're solving like hundreds of thousands of equations with hundreds of thousands of unknowns immediately like there's no way you can imagine that like humans can under- understand three intuitively not hundreds of millions and the reason three is the thing is because we live in a three-dimensional universe so we kind of understand we understand, you know, geometric placement and spatial awareness and stuff like that. But as soon as you start going to higher dimensions, uh, you know, you, four dimensions itself is just like mind boggling for a bunch of people. So it's impossible to think about five dimensions and hundreds of millions, but the computer can do it just well. It just cranks the numbers and spits out an answer. Uh, so computers are really good at noticing patterns so if you if you tell a computer hey look for this kind of a thing if you feed the computer every picture of a cat on earth you can program an algorithm to basically go through and look at relationships between where the pixels are light and dark and the shape of the cat's outline and they have all kinds of like you know edge detection code that you know does a whole bunch of other math and signal processing to say oh okay Here's the general shape of the cat. It's hiding in the bushes. Okay, here's another general shape of the cat. This one is on the street. Here's another cat. So when you collect every picture like that or enough pictures, they call that like a training set. If you collect enough pictures of a cat, eventually the computer can solve this very like high dimensional, you know, like if you have an 800 by 600 picture of a cat, that's only 800 times 600 total entries in a big matrix that you're trying to factor or whatever, right? Like you you can do pixel by pixel correlation if you really wanted to. So if you come in then, and if you take a picture of a cat, it can go and compare against its mathematical model. So it's actually trained up this mathematical model and solved this very complicated math problem, essentially. And it can say, oh, yeah, we think that that's a cat within a, you know, 75%. It can't really be sure, it can't ever be 100% sure that's a cat, unless it's seen that picture before, right? If the picture that you just took, you include in the training set, then it would say, oh, yeah, of course, I've already seen this one. But if it hasn't seen it before, it basically has to just take that picture and compare it with the things that it already knows. And you know you get back an answer. Yes, it kind of looks like something that you have said as, as somebody programming it. You, you've said that these are pictures of cats. I see that this is very similar to the things that you say is a cat. So I'm gonna say that it's a cat and with some percent confidence. Uh, it's really good. Machine learning is really good when you have the good training set. So if you're missing a bunch of pictures or if you only have pictures of cats from the back for whatever, if you only have cat butt, you know, and somebody takes a picture of the front of the cat, it's not going to really recognize that as a cat. So you really have to have a well-rounded set, you know, representative sampling um, of the things that you're trying to detect or recognize. Uh, So, you know, the the training set has to be, you know, well-rounded and a representative sample. You have to have... um, No ambiguity. Like if you slip a picture of a dog in with the cats, it's going to think that the dog is a cat because you're basically telling the computer, hey, include this in the things that you think is a cat. There's human guided machine learning. So that's where you give it pictures and then the human actually like will do the outlining for you and say, hey, I know that there's a picture of like three cats and a dog. Here are the cats, right, like highlighting the cats and here's the dog. That's the whole capture thing. You know, I'm not a robot, you got to pick all the pictures that have buses in them. That's basically a applied distributed like human guided machine learning, they have a whole bunch of pictures. But they, the ones that they present you with, they kind of present you a mix of ones that they've already identified as like, here's a bus. Now you have to pick the other buses, right. So they know, you know, they might know three out of the four, and they need you to help pick the last one, or see if there are any. So you're actually training a larger data set with some of those uh, recaptures. Uh, but anything outside of that, like if, if the computer only knows how to identify a cat and you say, hey, identify the airplane, it's not going to have any idea, right? Because the the feature detection that it's doing, it's trying to detect features of the cat, um, you know, may not be present on an airplane, unless it's a zoomed in picture and somebody's brought their cat on an airplane or something, right? And it's like, oh, okay, I see the cat in the window, like you know, being all cute. Uh, so that's that's actually gets us to what is machine learning not? Machine learning is not general AI. So people say, you know, there's a very specific, you know, you can code computers to do very specific tasks or recognize or notice patterns or do these types of like large scale statistical analysis things and correlations. But coming in and saying, hey, now solve this completely different problem, computers have a really hard time doing that still. Um, Even things like, you know, there's like the Google DeepMind, you know, there's a neural nets and stuff have been around forever from a theory standpoint. But then only kind of recently have they really exploded because we've had the systems, you know, the computer uh, hardware is kind of caught up to the point where a lot of these theoretical things that people have written down a long time ago in like the 80s, we actually now have the computing power to actually, you know, uh, implement those and like realize their potential essentially uh in the neural network case it's kind of cool because it doesn't really you basically tell it what winning is you basically describe like hey did you win or did you not so when they play you know chess or go or poker you know it's very easy you win if you've got your opponent in checkmate or you win if everybody else has zero dollars and you have all the chips in front of you if you're playing like a poker game so then you just let the neural network make decisions. So you have to basically say, hey, here's what the system can do. You can you know, check, fold, call, you know, raise, there's some basic actions along with like a dollar amount. And then the system just goes and tries to figure out the best way to play the game. Uh, and then it comes back sometime later after it's run hundreds and hundreds and millions and billions of, of trials, and it comes up with some solution and yeah. So it's pretty it's pretty cool. But in terms of like getting up to kind of the general like creativity, uh, that's they still have a, a hard time doing that. Um, they can do very sophisticated things. like there's the um, what is that called? The deep fakes. Deep fake is awesome. So deepfake is is basically using like neural networks with an objective function that says something like, hey, you know, replace this guy's head, but don't make it look too bad or something, right? So now you can make people say things that they never said and have it be, you know, believable. The technology is not perfect. It still has to be told what to do. So you can't walk up to the system quite yet and say, I want a thrilling noir movie where there's like one or two twists and turns and... You know, the hero gets crossed, double crossed, but then has a pet cat, but then right, the system can't go and make that movie for you yet. And and it can't really tailor the movie to your personal likes and dislikes. Right? like if you only buy Gucci, you know, you're not going to have the noir movie like hook into Facebook and know that it needs to put a bunch of like Gucci stuff in your film noir. Plus, I don't think Gucci really has a place in film noir. Uh, it depends on which noir, I guess. But yeah, so AI is still not, it's missing that kind of creative spark right now. It still has to be told what to do. There's still computers that run code and you kind of have to direct it uh, to solve things. That doesn't mean it's not disruptive. So the reason why AI is really a hot topic now is because it turns out you don't have to be human to really mess with humans and society, right? I mean, something as simple as automated checkout at the grocery store. Now, all of a sudden you can lay off a whole bunch of people. Okay, cool. I mean, that just disrupted a whole bunch of jobs. People used to get paid for that. Now they're not getting paid for that. So, you know, what do we do, um, at, like as a society at large? Like when we can automate a bunch of stuff, you know, what what does that mean now? So just to close on the, you know, what what can AI not do? There's a, in, in computer, in information theory, basically, there's this idea that machines, cannot themselves create additional complexity. You can't have a system or an algorithm that actually generates more complexity. Uh, and the idea of this is like, uh, you know, pi, the number pi, right? It's a transcendental number, 3.14, yada, yada, yada. It doesn't, it, the sequence, there's no like repeating sequence. It doesn't have the bar over it, which means that at some point it just like repeats. Um, so you might think that, oh yeah, it's an infinite sequence. It's super complicated. But the fact that you can compute it and it as a concept is fairly straightforward, right? It's a ratio of the what the diameter in the circumference. Uh you know, as a as a concept, it doesn't, it's not that complex. Uh so it doesn't, you know, you could represent it pretty pretty discreetly. Uh, but if somehow pi was able to generate all the other transcendental numbers or something or like be able to predict them then that's disruptive right that that's a that's a thing that you know ai can't really do you can't have computer code that starts off you know being programmed to do one thing and suddenly it just like paints a van gogh like randomly for no reason like it's not going to happen um so in that sense you know, there's not a lot to really fear about it. Like, it's not like you're going to have the iRobot come and murder everybody, because it just gets an idea to like, let's just kill things, right? There's no Skynet kind of thing. But the threat to human society is not necessarily being overtaken by, you know, some kind of sentient robot kind of thing. Uh, The threat to society, I think, is having society eat itself alive, because, you know, we either obsolete a bunch of jobs too quickly, or we sow divisions in between, you know, each other by trying to extract value or capital from people and advertising and all this stuff. So yeah. AI is kind of crazy.
0: you had mentioned the uh, you know, the job replacement aspect of it. You know, I mean, at one point, you know, in the United States, agriculture was what, like 80% of all jobs or something like that. I mean, that's not an exact figure, but it's something really substantial. And of course, automation in agriculture allowed that to you know, people to move away from the farms, move to cities, you know, do other things, things of that nature. I mean, eventually will just something else come along that these people that used to work at checkout counters will be able to do instead of working at checkout counters because their jobs was were replaced by
1: yeah, automation? Totally. Right. Yeah, that, you're absolutely right. Of course, stuff is going to come about. Um, the risk is, you know, agriculture and that type of a revolution played out, like the industrial revolution played out over a number of years, right? Was it 50 years or something for it to... Your concern
0: is the speed that it's happening,
1: right? Yeah. So now you're not just seeing a disruption over one industry. You're seeing disruption over every industry kind of simultaneously going to automation and you're seeing, you know, the, the shift is happening much faster, right? Like five years instead of 50 years. So it's a 10 X speed up. So that's kind of crazy. We don't really know as a society, we haven't quite adapted to that yet. Like we need some kind of radical thinking and leadership, but our politicians are all old, right? Like we were kind of joking before the call, right? But uh, you know, I, I saw this interesting infographic where they basically plot everybody's generation that's in the Senate, the US Senate. And what you notice is that everybody that's in the Senate now is they're mostly baby boomers, the vast majority of them. You have very few young people. And so, you know, when you have people that are are that were not raised in the context of this kind of technology revolution, it's very hard for them to kind of think about, especially long term, it's hard for anybody to think long term, like thinking more than five years, like what is computer, you know, what are computers gonna be able to do in five years is a really hard thing to think about still. But it's
0: well, an interesting point. But I mean, do can most young people even you no, grasp that. Right. I mean, because I'm listening to you talk, I'm not understanding right. probably yeah. two thirds yeah. of it. And
1: so young people have no idea, <laughs> yeah. dude. That's the thing. Young people have no idea. But the difference is, they have to live with their consequences. Right. Right. So if somebody who's like you know baby boomer and they're almost you know they're going to retire or they're going to you know not be alive in 50 years, you know, if they're making decisions that'll impact the next hundred years and they don't know what they're doing, they can kind of do whatever. And it, there's no consequences, and so the decisions that they make are not necessarily. Aligned to the long term success or viability of human society as we know it Ah, But yeah, you know, it's that that's an interesting problem. Uh, but yeah, so replacing the jobs is a thing. I don't know how to do that. People are struggling with that right now. There's no easy answer. There are some answers like speaking of
0: replacing the jobs and the baby boomers in the Senate, I mean, something that we've heard a lot recently is, you know, like the people that work the checkout counters that are getting replaced or people that are coal miners or whatever, you know, they're just saying, oh, just, you know, learn to code, learn to code. Let's get these resources for people to learn to code. I mean, is there a, an aptitude floor on, on somebody that can code or is that actually something that, you know, just your average citizen can learn to do?
1: Uh... I think everybody can do it. I think people have to be exposed at a young age. I think they have to have support from friends and family. And, you know, our our public education system probably could use some help there also. Um, But I don't think it's beyond the capability of anybody to like, I don't think that it's like a, you can either do it or not. I think it takes effort, right? I think just like anything else, people have talents for things. Like, I'm not going to go and play the violin. Just I've even if I spent the rest of my life learning violin, I don't know if I would be any good at it. And then, so it's the same thing. Like you, if you go up to a coal miner who's been doing that his whole life or her whole life and you say, hey, you're going to learn how to program now. Go do some stuff. It's kind of a tough sell. You know, people are already established in their lives. It's very hard to change direction. There's kind of a, a not only just a kind of a personal inertia, you get comfortable with doing the same thing kind of day in and day out. There's also like a social inertia, right? Like there's some kind of machismo like, oh, yeah, dude, I, I go, I, I coal mine. I got the black lawn and now you're going to sit in front of a computer. I need to be outside. I need to be in the mines, dude. I need to be digging that shit. So now to say, hey, you know, go and go and sit in front of a computer. The best you're going to get for mining is like Bitcoin, right? Go, go do Bitcoin mining, right? Uh, but yeah, it's, it's it's tricky and then there's also access to broadband right like so much of our stuff now is is tied to the internet and how connected we are that a lot of these areas in rural america for example they don't really have reliable internet service so that kind of they're kind of cut off from being able to even do that even if they wanted to so that's another problem Yeah, there's problems on top of problems that there was an interesting there are some kind of revolutionary disruptive ideas in politics Um, Like the Andrew Yang guy, I think he has an idea to do universal basic income. Uh, So that basically the, the bet there is that if you give everybody just money, like 2k a month or whatever, uh, then that frees them up. There's kind of two aspects to it. One, we start valuing things like the stay at home mom, who's just, you know, not really bringing in anything. We as a society would be saying, Hey, that's something that we value. You know, you're doing a stay at home mom or stay at home dad thing. And so the government is basically paying you to provide that support uh, for for the kids. Uh, the other thing is that people take more risks when they feel like they have a safety net. Um, so the idea that, it, and they're all bets, right? U, UBI as a concept hasn't really been proven at scale, especially like at the scale of the United States. Um, so who knows, right? But the the bet is that if you give people money, then they're more willing to innovate are more willing to exercise kind of entrepreneurial spirit because the you know the 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 impact of failure is lessened. They have that safety net. Well they they're never going to make less than whatever it is. There's also I guess a third thing which is if you give everybody UBI then you can clean up a bunch of other policies. There's like a bunch of welfare and tax loopholes and the idea is somehow maybe we clean all that stuff up and we just say hey here's the tax rate or whatever it is no loopholes. Everybody gets this much money. You know, there's no exceptions, that kind of thing. And then, so we could eliminate a bunch of, you know, red tape and bureaucracy by doing that. But yeah, somebody's going to have to pay for it. I don't know if, yeah, that's, that's why it's a bet. Like, how are you going to fund it? People that's like true. you, Nuri. No, I mean, yeah, there's it's, there's, it's, it's kind of funny, right? Like there's this huge backlash against folks like Bezos or uh, Elon Musk or you know Satya Nadella or Tim Cook or any of these you know big billionaire type folks, or you know in very visible high profile positions as, as CEOs of their respective companies, but I mean look if Elon Musk wanted to cash out all of his like trillions of dollars or whatever hundreds of billions of dollars he can't do that I think he's at like what 148 billion.
0: Well, even if you yeah. just run the numbers, like if you took everybody on the Forbes billionaire list and somehow you know was able to liquidate all of that at the current value, which is impossible. Yeah, you you still wouldn't even make a dent. Right.
1: Yeah. So, you know, the the whole like, oh, Amazon doesn't pay taxes or any of that. Dude, they pay payroll taxes. You want to double tax? You want them to, to pay tax twice, right? And all the employees that get their money, they pay sales tax. You know, state of Washington is like uh 10%, I think. And then Seattle has a little bit more. It's like 10 point one or 10 point two. I don't I don't know. But
0: Okay, so I don't think we've touched on this yet, but you work at Microsoft. You are a senior software engineer lead. What, what does that mean? What do you do? What kind of projects do you work on?
1: Yeah, so I I'm a dev lead. So I have uh, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get massacred for this. I have four people that report to me. If I'm forgetting somebody, I'm gonna get in trouble. I have a team of four or five. I think it's five, including me. So I've I've got I've got five people on the team, including me. And we work on a variety of problems. We so I work in Windows. Do you work, work on, on the Zoom? Zoom? I do not work on the Zoom.
0: Do you still have to use the Zoom or a Microsoft phone?
1: Yes. If you don't use a Microsoft phone, then they publicly shame you. No, there's no Microsoft phone. Not anymore. They they kind of gave that one up. Uh, the code is all there. The code is all there. How
0: relieved were you when you could finally buy an iPhone? You gotta you had to been pretty happy, right?
1: yeah so the iphone yeah the iphone story for me because whenever i text you it's got the iMessage thing right and i i think that you you were hassling me a little bit when you noticed that the the message went from green to blue suddenly you're like oh you bought you welcome to the 21st century i think is something that you said (laughs) but uh yeah i mean i was i was a big so i was there when phone was you know uh the the hot thing and so you, we would get publicly shamed a little bit. It's like, oh, why aren't you, you know, all in on the, my, do you not believe in the corporate vision? It's kind of, you know, it's, it, you know, friendly. Nobody really actually cared. Like, But there's some kind of, you know, water cooler humor, you know, poking fun or whatever. Uh, so I I went out and I got a Windows phone. It was a bit of a learning curve. There were no apps, which was a problem, <laughs> right? That's kind of the thing that killed it. Right. Uh, and then, so I kept that phone a long time, because it was the Lumia 1020 or something, and it had a really fancy camera on it. Like, it, it turns out that Nokia put like all of their uh, kind of, you know, a stupid investment, maybe I don't, I don't want to editorialize too much. I would not have spent the money on the camera, but they were going for a super like distinguishing, differentiate you know, market differentiator thing. They went all in on the camera. The camera's fantastic, it still is. It's like, it's basically a camera that can make phone calls, right? Uh, and then they paired that with a bunch of, you know, photo editing apps and all kinds of, you know, everything that you would expect to be super swag. And yeah, they, you know, Nokia put all their money in that. I bought that phone. Um, I kept it as long as I could, you know, again, so much of our, so much of our world is, is internet run. And so what happens if somebody changes a web API or something? So it's, it's interesting because a lot of the apps and stuff just stopped working. Reddit just would not open any more posts. Because the way that they wrote Reddit changed, it changes over time, right? So unless you keep the app updated, suddenly there comes a point where the app doesn't really work anymore because it's trying to talk to, you know, a back-end server someplace that either isn't there anymore or the way that it's talking has changed, so it can't really, you know, you can't do it. So a bunch of my apps started failing, but that still was not enough to get me off of the iPhone or the, off of the Windows phone. Uh, we were doing a project where uh it's kind of kind of a secret project uh i think it was announced it's like the surface neo or surface duo it's the like two screen thing that we announced
0: mm, never heard of it maybe you haven't announced it yet yeah we, no, we no.
1: have you have now no 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 <laughs> we, it's it's announced um and so we we're kind of doing an incubation project to kind of see what what that would look like and um, you know, the, the project got delayed and at that point I got kind of fed up and I went out and bought an iPhone. So for me, that was kind of the breaking point. Like they, we were supposed to, you know, be two or three years ahead of where we are now. Um, but, you know, Microsoft has a, a very proud tradition of moving at its own pace and other priorities come up and there's other business stuff that happens. And so, you know, as an organization, we thought we could make more money doing other stuff. Um, so, you know, dev resources got reshuffled around project kind of got put on hold or delayed. Um, and then, so at that point I was like, well, I can't wait three years or whatever to get my hands on this thing. I'm, I need to go get an iPhone. Uh, that, so
0: I think I interrupted you when you were talking about, you know, your team and what you worked on. So let's pick it up from there. What are, the, what are the projects that you guys work on?
1: Yeah. So we work on the core OS. So there's this, there's a recognition that, that, you know, windows runs on a bunch of different devices. It runs on HoloLens, it runs on Internet of Things devices, it runs on you know uh, your Xbox, desktop, servers, Azure, all the Azure machines in the cloud they all run some flavor of, of Windows. Uh, and all of these operating systems they can do different things. You know Hololens can you know you it, it's got a whole bunch of sensors and it can you know detect orientation and present to you kind of the, the mixed reality or augmented reality experience. Uh, you know, Xbox is is a different OS that's still based on core Windows. Uh, IoT is another one. And each of these has different levels of kind of functionality. So an Internet of Things device may or may not be able to actually show you pixels. It may not have a like a monitor or a visual thing at all. It might just be something that you plug in uh, via Ethernet or whatever, and then it goes and does stuff like home automation type things, right? Uh, Xbox, for example, doesn't—you can't just like, you know, open a start menu and run Zoom or whatever, right? You can't like go and look at the contents of your D drive or C drive or whatever. Uh, so Xbox is is still Windows OS, but it, you know, it's got different capabilities. It can run games really well. Uh, so we noticed that at Microsoft a long time ago that as we start having more and more of these operating systems they all basically need to use a common set of features or code. And so instead of having each product kind of be its own silo, you know, vertically integrated silo, there's a bunch of duplication that that we have. So we wanted to reorganize or componentize the system so that all the different OS offerings are all basically based on the same common core. So we call that one core. Uh, and so I'm, I'm the team lead for the one core architecture group. So we, we manage like basically that core set of components. Um, but we don't actually own the binaries. So like the network security binary, there's still a network security team that, that owns, you know, network security. Um, what we focus on is more componentization and layering. So things like, you know, there's it's one thing to say, hey, we have a bunch of different products and they're all based on the common core, but what happens if all but one product use the same component? Do they get an exclusion? Like, do you say, hey, that component that's used by pretty much everybody except this one team, should that be part of one core or should that actually be an opt-in for everybody except that one? Like, is there kind of this exception or is it, you know, everywhere? Or it, can they absorb it? Can the the folks that don't actually need the component can they say, yeah, fine, we'll take it? You know, just make everybody else happy, right? So there's there's these interesting layering type questions where you know it's more of an art than a science. Uh, and so you know we we do a bunch of uh, data modeling and a bunch of um, you know binary dependency analysis, who uses what, where should the different layers be you know how should there be two layers or three layers or 10 layers or 50 right there's all these types of questions what happens if two products all use the same stuff but then like another two products use completely different stuff that and if you mix and match then everybody blows up so there's all these different like yeah it's kind of this interesting uh clustering problem or or layering problem um with componentization so uh there's there's folks on my team that work on that there's some folks that work on uh, a specific type of os there's a guy that works on uh, exposing the api surface across the board Um, and then the thing that i'm super passionate about that that i started so my whole career at microsoft could be pretty much summarized by trying to understand what windows is what is this thing i've been you know we i i grew up with windows our house was not a, a Mac, a Macintosh house. We we had, you know, Windows machines. So this thing that I've been using my whole life, like what, what even is this, right? <laughs> so I built out this uh, graph database, right? Graphs, go figure. Um, that basically helps us understand relationships between various parts of the system. So, you know, it goes back to, you know, which binaries use which features or what parts or how should the thing be composed or if you're compiling the operating system, you know how are the different source files related? Like, do you really always have to compile the same source file into different projects, or can you kind of, you know, com- compile them into some kind of intermediate thing and then reuse the intermediate thing a bunch? There's a lot of these types of interesting business problems that come from just being able to understand how the system is built. Uh, so I've been focusing a lot of my career so far on building that information system, like as a, as a graph database and i'm I'm just now finally getting to the point where we can start using that to start making significant business decisions. So some of the things that we're going after right now are, uh, you know if you if you change some code, what's the best way to test it? So because we have a lot of teams at Microsoft, you know teams may not talk to each other as much as we'd like. So it might be that two teams have written test codes that exercise different parts of the same binary. So if, if a team is running their code and their test, we might actually be able to go and tell them, hey, you know, you're know, you getting some good test coverage, but you would actually do better if you also talk to this other team and use their tests also. You could be more confident that you're not gonna break anything uh, when we ship the product, if you also test with their stuff. So there's those types of insights that we're able to surface um, as well. Yeah, it's kind of a cool cool space to be in. So good for me, it's a, for me personally, it's kind of a good mix of like the theoretical stuff that I've, that I've studied, plus the kind of systems and more practical aspects. Plus there's an entrepreneurial thing where, you know, having a big information system that can, you know, make sense of a lot of different aspects of the system that there's a bunch of people who are curious and want to be able to use that to their own ends. Right. Like I know that the HoloLens folks right now are, are doing a bunch of work and the HoloLens guys came and said, hey, we we have some concerns. You know, we're about to move this up the tree. So we have this way of building in, in at Microsoft where, uh, you know, each team kind of builds their stuff. And then when they're ready to promote that up a level to run more tests on it, they, there's a formal process where they actually take that, you know, to the next level. And then as you get closer to shipping, you know, there's more and more tests that run on it. Um, there's application compatibility things to make sure that you know, you haven't broken Candy Crush or whatever by introducing a change. Um, so this team is is ready to promote their code. They're ready to move their code up. But they made a bunch of changes. And so they were wondering if WCD, that's the thing that I own, the Windows Composition Database. They are wondering if if the information system, the graph database can help them understand what changes they've made, because they've made a bunch of changes over however many months they've been working on this thing. Uh, and then, kind of give them a signal. Are is there anything that they are not aware of that they should think about? So we're working with them right now. It's
0: kind of cool. Uh, all right, tell me about your experience at UF in the computer science department. I believe you were there when there was some uh, some threat that the entire department was going to be dismembered.
1: Dismembered. Uh, yeah. So I I was I grew up in Gainesville. Uh, I went to Oak Hall. And I basically stayed in Gainesville because I had a whole bunch of friends. I had a job already um, and it was just kind of easy. You know, we were talking about social inertia, making big changes is kind of hard for people to do. So for me at that time in my life, you know, I I didn't want to make any big changes. I just wanted to kind of go to the, you know, the college that was in the same city that I essentially grew up in, right? But I went there for undergrad, had a really good time. Um, I spent a couple of years. Uh, I spent two years doing, you know, more computer stuff, and then I came back to do the PhD at the same school because, again, convenience, right? And yeah, you know, the UF is UF is not alone in the problems that that they were facing at the time. Uh, it, it's been several years now, but you know, a lot of these colleges, they already have an electrical and computer engineering program. They already have electrical engineering, right? That deals with electronics and computer systems and that one kind of grows. And those programs are usually more focused on computer architecture and silicon and, uh, you know, power systems and stuff like that. Uh, The computer department, the computer information science and engineering at UF and at other uh, colleges too, They focus a little bit more on kind of writing code. You can think of it less about the silicon and more about the algorithms that, you know, the algorithms and the code that you would write that uses the silicon to, you know, achieve whatever, you know, problem that um, they're trying to solve. So my PhD was focused, you know, the, it was very much math, right? Like QR factorization on GPU is, is very much like a linear algebra problem. But then there's also the theoretical side of it with the graph partitioning, and that has a lot of math too. Um, but uh, yeah, so CISE is the right spot, I think, for for that type of study. It's less interesting for you know to talk about silicon. If we wanted to design a custom computer that could do this, then that would be you know an, an ECE or electrical computer engineering kind of a, a study. Uh, where we're trying to like build a custom you know chip that can do the algorithm you know on the chip. So at, you know reconciling these two is very appealing for a, a you know program because a lot of the faculty teach courses across the board, right? Like you can take some of the the ECE folks that focus more on theory, and have them teach classes in computer information in CISE. And you can take some of the CIC folks who are, you know, more focused on systems and silicon and GPU stuff. And you can have them teach ECE courses. So a lot of the faculty is kind of blurred between the two. Like they could basically be in either department. It's just whatever. Uh, so you know, it, it was kind of appealing to try to squash the two and say, well, why? Let's just eliminate some redundancy here and merge the two departments. Uh, the problem, of course, is that, you know, merging it, especially with, you know, 10-year faculty, like what happens to all those jobs? What happens to the study? Like, would would my PhD now, would I have to start over? Or would I have to go to a different college, right? Would I have to leave the university? What happens to all the TA ships? There are a bunch of people who are there on student visas that, you know, if, if there's only one department with fewer classes, then that means that there's fewer teaching opportunities, which means that a bunch of the TAs would be let go. Right. So, you know, super disruptive and the mission, the the mission of CISE is, is somewhat different as I, as I mentioned than the mission of ECE. They're close, but they're not entirely the same either. So in, in kind of a bold move by uh, the Dean of engineering at the time, Cami Abernathy, I don't know if she's still there. Uh, she basically proposed a, a plan where she was going to split the faculty into thirds from CISE, and one third would move to uh, ECE. Uh, one third would stay in CISE and just do teaching. So they wanted to kind of make computer science a vocational kind of a, a thing where you can come in, you can learn how to code, and then you know you get your degree and you go and you work as a programmer. It's essentially what you were mentioning earlier with the you know reskilling you know, coal workers or whatever, Uh, but no, no basic research. So the, the CIC department would not take PhD students in in the proposal, would not take any new PhD students. Um, They would just basically be an undergrad and a master's uh, degree mill. Uh, And then the last third would either be let go or folded into industrial engineering, I think was the, the pitch. So there's this really interesting plan but it just didn't really it didn't smell right there's a lot of weird a lot of a lot of loose ends um and yeah we we decided that that wasn't a good idea (laughs) and uh yeah we we basically had like a little protest movement um, and got them to reconsider
0: now since then that department's gotten a lot has happened there, right? I mean, I think they have like a $70 million partnership with NVIDIA now for you know AI. I mean, that seems like that'd be under the CISC umbrella, right?
1: Yeah, so either CIC or ECE, probably both. The ECE had the Hypergator. The Hypergator is the high performance computer for UF. Um, I forget the details. It's, it's basically a big supercomputer that has GPUs and stuff attached to it that you can run really, really big uh, problems on. Um, And I believe I haven't been paying too close attention. So that's, you know, shame on me, but I believe that the AI funding thing with NVIDIA is to get either more GPUs or GPU or, or devices that are really good at doing kind of the tensor product type calculations that, you know, it's essentially, it's, it's just more math. Um, Being able to do the, the highly specialized linear algebra that we come to expect from like deep learning neural networks uh, and machine learning codes. So yeah, that's, and, and to our credit, the Dean uh, was able to kind of define or redefine or specialize, maybe specialize is a better word, specialize the CISE department to focus on human computer interaction and kind of more of the applications for computer science or computer engineering. So I know that the, the human computer interaction group is really, really strong. Uh, that's Dr. Ben Locke. I think he was a former guest on your, your podcast. Um, so he, he leads that, that initiative. And then I know that they also doubled down in computer security, which was a gap that uh, ECE doesn't have. So, uh, you know, again, to the Dean's credit, like the, there was a, a recognition that, okay, merging the two departments is not, you know, the students didn't like that. <laughs> so what if we just, uh, you know, better define the separation between the two departments and have less overlap? So the way to do that, is to actually broaden, you know, the the research areas of CISE. So they expanded away from, you know, uh, ECE in kind of a, a more vigorous direction with a solid vision that hey, we're going to be kind of the preeminent human computer interaction thing for the the southeast, um, and then uh, security.
0: So you said there's like a, a gap in between undergrad and your PhD program where you're doing believe your quote is computer stuff. Um, you know, you were involved in some, you know, some, I guess you call Gainesville tech startups, right? I mean, what, what was your involvement there?
1: Yeah. So uh, let's see. I went to, yeah, so I went to high school at, at Oak Hall and the seniors, so the seniors have this like senior project, I think is what it was called, or senior senior week or something. Uh, senior project. I think that's what it was called. So they, they had a a senior project where they would take the last two weeks of the school year and actually work part-time they work part-time for some company um and you know they would kind of come back and they would share their experiences with each other and stuff and there was this like write-up that you would do um and then we all took a trip to new york so it, it was interesting our class i graduated in 2001 it was the the last class before you know 9 11 obviously to be able to go and visit New York like that. So totally wild experience and totally crappy that people had to ram planes into the buildings. But yeah, so uh, I did not get to do a senior project because we were gonna go to Greece. Um, my, my dad, who's also a, a PhD, but for industrial engineering at UF, he was presenting at, the, at some Aegean conference on microcontrollers or something. So we were gonna go to Greece, uh during the period that I was supposed to do um the senior project. So instead, what what we ended up doing, I took uh I took all of spring break. So instead of two weeks at part-time, I did one week at full-time. And I worked for a startup uh called MindSolve, which is now I think some total systems uh, they got bought out. Uh yeah, so I worked with uh Dan Bacchabella and Jeff Lyons at MindSolve uh doing web development stuff um, you know, as a high schooler, it's like a high school senior. Um, and then I just kept working for them, uh, through undergrad. And then when I graduated, I decided to kind of mix it up a little bit. Um, and then I went and worked with the medical manager, which then became MD which then got, uh, sold again to, I think Sage software. And then now I think it's Viterra health, you know, a bunch of name changes and stuff, but essentially it's the same, great group of folks. Um, And then over there, I worked with, you know, uh, Fred Harmon and Sean Connor, uh, Dana Flalo, Phil Dodds, Sean Dodds, all the, yeah. Yeah. Huge. Huge is a really, really smart guy. Some of the best, you know, it's interesting. uh, Gainesville, you wouldn't know it, but, or maybe you would know it because yeah, but there's a lot of really strong tech talent but it's not really on the map, right? Like if you go to, you know, a random coffee shop in Seattle and you go, Hey, have you ever heard of anybody that works in Gainesville? They're like, what, what Gainesville, Georgia? No, Gainesville, Florida, right? Like, come on, uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, but, you know, the people that I worked with at, at MindSolve and at um, medical manager or MD or whatever it was, it's the the place out in Alachua. That does the medical practice management software. So I think it's Viterra. I'm gonna call it Viterra Health. So the people that work at Vitera and at, at some total are some of the best engineers that you can find. Like I would, I would hire them over some of the people that I work with at Microsoft. <laughs> Might need to cut that one. But but yeah, right. Like so there's this very strong like sense of ownership and pride. Um, and not everybody has that. And that's that's something that's kind of unique and should be valued.
0: So with the COVID lockdown, are you working from home now?
1: Oh yeah, of course. Everybody's working from home. Uh, yep. Sometimes I work from home and I wear a mask just because it's it's scary to like go and ambush my wife and be like, Oh, surprise.
0: (laughs) You're also a twin parent though. And and they're, they're young twins. How does that, uh, work-life balance work when you're, you know, working at home the whole time, trying to really, I mean, I would imagine writing code is very kind of mentally taxing and it's hard to be distracted from that.
1: Yeah, the, the twins are they just turned three this week. So the 20th is their, their birthday. So they just turned three. Uh there's a I don't know if you've heard of this, because I know that you're also a twin parent, but have you heard of the three major? I have not. So there's the terrible twos, but then there's the three major. This is the well,
0: I've heard the I mean the true terrible twos were were pretty easy for us, but right. and yes. I just say, yeah, it's that's the lie. It's the threes are where it's really bad.
1: Yeah, the three major thing is the crazy shit. So yeah, I mean the work life balance is more balanced on I mean, it's all work. Twins are just work, and work yeah. is work. Uh concentrating can be hard. Uh, for the first part of COVID, it was super challenging because uh, Washington State was on a complete lockdown, um, and my wife also uh, works full time. So we we kind of decided early on when we wanted to have a family that her career is important, my career is important. Um, we decided that was it was a it was something that we wanted to value personally was having strong role models of both parents being you know gainfully employed and doing you know meaningful shit. You can quote me on that one. Uh so yeah, you know, we we wanted to we we basically outsourced. So we we have a nanny, she's awesome, um, really great background with early childhood education. Uh she was a former preschool teacher. So uh yeah, she's she's with the kids from like 8:30 until 430 every day. Um, and then I take the morning shift and then my wife takes kind of the evening shift until I get off. So there's You know, it's very careful management, but, you know, the the twin life, that first year, man, that's kind of crazy. Well, Nuri, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. Good to see you.